Welcome to Game Over Montreal. There's some games where you kind of want to see a team, even if they're tanking, for lack of a better word, win, right? And when you lose someone like Guy Lafleur for your organization, you want to see them come out and play with uh, some passion. And frankly, the Canadians did play a very good first period, but uh, Forsberg was fantastic in net for Ottawa, and then things got away from them. To talk about that, and we're going to talk about Guy Lafleur a lot on this show, I'm going to welcome in my guest. Andrew Cohen. It's the Andrew show tonight. Andrew B and Andrew C. How's it going, Andrew? It's going well. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's been a tough week for Montreal Canadiens fans, but uh, it's nice to end with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, it, it's been an up and down week for for Canadiens fans, I think, because everybody wants the tank, right? And they're getting closer and closer to that first overall pick. Everyone's got that date circled in May for the draft lottery. Now they've clinched a bottom two spot in the league. Uh, we had Julian McKenzie on last week, and he was talking about how this team had the potential to set the Canadians' record for most goals allowed in a season. They've done that. They did it <laughs> last game. They're on pace for 50 regulation losses with uh, you know tough, tough teams in the last stretch of the, game, the season here. Uh, this was the last game that looked legitimately winnable for the Canadians. Tomorrow's back-to-back against the Boston Bruins. It's a tough way to end the schedule for these Montreal Canadiens who, for a while, had a little bit of hope going after the co- coaching change. Yeah, I think that's right. There was the, the, the coaching bump that you see in other teams, in other leagues. You saw it with Martin Saint-Louis. Maybe it lasted a little longer with Martin Saint-Louis than it has with other coaches. But I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, right? Five, six games ago, you started to see the slide and there's no stopping it. And imagine tomorrow's game. I mean, you're coming back home from Ottawa, right? You're playing your bitter rival, the Boston Bruins. There still has to be emotion over the death of Guy Lafleur. There's obviously going to be a ceremony at the, uh, at, at the, the Montreal rink uh, for Guy Lafleur. And these guys have to basically turn around from this effort tonight and try to be competitive tomorrow against a team that's, you know, much better. So uh, I hope that Carey Price doesn't start tomorrow. I can't imagine he will, given his performance today. And, uh, you know, you just hope that uh, nobody gets hurt between now and the end of the year. And you and I were joking. I said that the first thing I I thought of when the game ended was, thank goodness, no Canadians were majorly injured by the Senators, who were clearly out for blood uh, in the first, I don't know, half the game. Yeah, it was it was a weird one. I. It's weird to see a team embody the attitude of the fan base that the team has, like weirdly. Like, I just can't remember a time where post-game comments, even critical comments, rattled a team so severely as the Ottawa Senators in that first period. And obviously they got very fortunate that Carey Price was not on his game tonight. And I know there's lots of people who are worried about Price right now because the last two games have not been pretty. This is what I expected after 74 games missed. Like the timing's off. He's having trouble tracking pucks. Like this is more of what I expected than the first two games where he was very strong. So I don't know. That that kind of stuff, this is what it should look like for Price. It's gonna be a, an uphill battle. Think of this as his preseason. And 
obviously that helped the Senators, right? That first goal was brutal. Uh, the third goal was not much better. But uh, I think if the Canadians were an NHL-level team, they win this game. Like, I think that's my takeaway from it is, is if they had an NHL roster, which they clearly do not, right. they win that right. game. Right. Or they're, they're close. I, I, I think Price wasn't good tonight. I think the defense wasn't good in that stretch for him. Yep. Um, it's not exactly um, playing with the cards that you want to be dealt with going into the season. Uh, it's certainly not the, the hand that you thought you had going into this season. Uh, it's certainly not what you're going to have going into next season. And yet you have to, you have to chalk it up. I mean, this is, they had what, 47 shots. I, I lost track at 46. Was it 46, 45, something like that. So they set a, a season record, right. In shots on goal. They just don't have the talent um, to put a lot of those pucks in the net uh, with a more talented team with an NHL team, as you say, um, they likely score more goals. They likely defend a little bit better, but it shows you a game like this where they are emotional and they are invested and they did try and there was effort. Uh, how far they have to go. I mean, they're, they're getting beat by Ottawa. They're getting beat by Philadelphia. They're getting beat by teams that are, uh, you know, really not very good. And they're not getting beat cl in close games. Uh, I guess you could say this game was close. It was pretty much, you know, put away when it's five to one. So they have a lot of work to do. And I think in the same way that Martin St. Louis bump helped the management assess a little bit uh, what they have in terms of talent, this sort of uh, slacking, this, this sort of losing streak, also is, I think, instructive. And also, I think, uh, gives a bit of realism to the job ahead this summer and going into the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think that's what's important from this stretch, right? Is they had the little bump. They saw the potential there. Now is the reality check. <laughs> it's, we know how big this is going to have to be, the changes. And one of the things that I consistently watch over the last couple of games here is, you know, you see Caulfield and Suzuki and Anderson at times have this great cycle on in the offensive zone. And then the puck goes back to the point and it's either Romanoff or Savard handling it back there. And it just leaves the zone. And yeah. Savard has his one move, which he did tonight, that he pulls off almost every single time where he pulls to the backhand to the inside and it fools everyone. Because nobody ever expects it. But in terms of just handling the puck and distributing it, right. this team really lacks in that department. And I know that there's issues with uh, how Jeff Petrie's season has gone. And especially on the power play, his ability to break the puck out has been rough for a while now. That's for whatever reason, he just doesn't make very good decisions. But when they switched him onto the power play tonight, it was the first time in a while where their power play looked a little bit dangerous and kept yeah. control the whole time. Right. So I'm glad to see that there's some adjustments being made, but overall this team from the back end is very, very bereft of talent. Yeah, it's bereft of talent and you're going to have your year or two away from seeing the flourishing of the talent that they do have. I mean, you know, you, you can't expect Harris and Barron and Gooley and, um, you know, even the kid they drafted uh, last year, Logan Mayo, you know, these guys aren't going to be uh, all-stars next year. Uh, maybe two of them are going to make the team. They're going to need a, a, a maturation process. Look at Romanov. Yep. Romanov. I mean, he, he's, uh, you know, he's better this year than he was last year. He's taken a huge leap. That's what you're going to expect from these young kids. So you're at least two years away, uh, even if they pan out. And uh, one of the big questions, obviously, going into the offseason is what they're going to do with Petrie. 
And if they do unload Petrie, which I think they will, and which I hope they do, uh, whether they're going to try to sign some veteran, you know, I don't want necessarily some high priced veteran defenseman uh, on the team next year. Uh, I'd rather, uh, since we're halfway there, let's have one more year where they suck and, 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 and get a top five uh, talent, which they desperately need, whether it's on offense or defense. Uh, and then you move forward in what, 23, 24. Um, that would be my hope for what happens, but you're right. I mean, uh, you're not going to cut it with this uh, sort of defense and, and uh, there are clearly going to be changes. Yeah. And I think there are those who think that the, or who are worried that the Canadians are going to try to push to make the playoffs next year because Orton and Hughes have talked about a quicker turnaround than people expect. But I think what they're signaling is not five years. Yeah. Right? I think you can see from the trades that they made, yeah. that they're looking at like windows of two years from now and four years from now as like their, waves of players coming in and making this team a lot better. There's a comment here on the stream chat that says, I would say the senators looked more tired than rattled played on the back to back after going to the shootout last night in the third period. I'd agree with you, but in the first period, they were not focused on anything, but Brendan Gallagher. Right. And it was very clear. Like Rem Pitlick's goal happened because they were unfocused. Yeah. Like they just yeah. did not have it. Yeah. And let's give the referees credit. You know, um, the game could have gotten out of hand and it likely would have gotten out of hand. And uh, we've seen games like this that do get out of hand and maybe not the line brawls that you used to have back in the day, but you know, somebody gets clipped and somebody gets injured and stuff. So I give the, the credit to the referees who early on, I think it was the slash on Anderson, right. That sort of sent the signal, listen, we're not going to have any of this stuff. Um, and again, I just, came into the game with the lineup that Ottawa had that's bigger and stronger and you just worried. And so it's, it's over. <laughs> and now you got to face the, the, the sweet Bruins, uh, you know, uh, at the forum, which is going to, uh, at, at, at the bell center, which is going to be um, um, very emotional. It's going to be really interesting to see how the team is able to react. And uh, I just think that they're, they're playing out the stream. I mean, Armia gets a hall pass and he's gone and, and, uh, you know, I think they basically shut it down. And that's not the worst thing in the world, honestly. No, it's not. I think the main thing you want to see is things like Cole Caulfield continuing to score, right? He netted yeah. his 20th year of the year this year, 19th since St. Louis yeah. took over as head coach. Kind of wild, really, that he hit 20 goals considering the first half of the season. It's the little positive things that you want to hinge on and not necessarily even how they're playing right now because there's yeah. not much that they can do. Uh, they just don't have an NHL level roster. They don't. And, and, you know, you know, Rem Pitlick's another story, right? He had two goals tonight. He's been a surprise, a waiver pickup. He's the kind of guy that you keep around, whether you are going to go for something next year or not. Uh, he's the guy that you say, okay, I'm going to have him in my lineup. If I'm going to have another down year uh, and he's going to fill a role and he's, you know, not going to embarrass me on the ice and he's going to score maybe 15 goals or so. His defense uh, leaves something to be desired, but you're going to have other forwards that um, are going to uh, hopefully take up the slack. Um, you're going to have Yelonen, I, I guess, uh, up from, uh, from Laval next year, probably to take uh, Lekanen's place. And so, you know, there is some, some, some talent, I, I guess, in the pipeline, but it's going to be fascinating this off season to see what they do. And whether they shoot for another sort of bottom 10 um, landing or whether they try to, to go for something more aggressive, I don't think they're going to go for something more aggressive. I think they're going to try to get rid of as many people as they can that have long-term salaries. And I think that we're in for another um, down year, but 
if you get that top three choice this year and you have a good draft and you get a top three choice next year um, with the defensive talent that's in the pipeline with a couple of offensive players, you're not that far from being competitive. And I think that's the goal two or two years down the road. And if they listen, if they can be competitive and young and talented two years from now, I think people will be pretty pleased. Oh, absolutely. Like it, it'll be night and day with uh, how people felt in the first half of the season, right? I, going from the Stanley cup final to essentially worse than the league. It it's devastating for a fan base, but I think that people have seen enough at this point that they know what the plan is, or at least they think they know what the plan is. We all can kind of see the outline of it. If they hold to it, things can get better relatively quickly. A um, couple comments here that I wanted to point out before we continue yeah. to get back to the game. Uh, also, I, one thing about Rem Pitlick, I feel like he's a really good bad team player. Yeah. If you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I feel like Mike Hoffman is a very bad, bad team player. <laughs> right. If you can insulate Mike Hoffman and have him on your third line in a scoring role and throw him out on your second wave power play, great guy to have around for low salary. But on this team, not so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah somebody's saying, uh, let's see here. Uh, Andrew, can I get your opinion on Sportsnet broadcast? I've been fed up, so I decided to time it. The panel talked about this game for one minute on the dot during two intermissions combined. Given the stuff they could amp up with this game being nationally broadcast and the attention of Gallagher's comments on Stutzla a couple weeks ago, which make the lack of attention odd. I Listen, I, I get it. And normally, I think they do focus too much on the Leafs, but they're broadcasting two games tonight on Sportsnet. One of them is between the two top teams in the Atlantic Division and two of the best teams in the entire league the Leafs right. and the Panthers. And the other is between two teams that are not going anywhere this season or frankly, anytime soon. Ottawa is the good team at 26th in the league, worse than they were last year. Montreal is 31st in the league, could be 32nd by the end of the season. I think they allotted that time appropriately uh, on a regional broadcast. That's where you would, yeah. if they're talking about other stuff, I feel like that's where you can nail them uh, on. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that point was made because what I thought during the broadcast, I, I didn't pay much attention in, in the intermissions. I was looking for the Lafleur stuff, and but but the yeah. broadcast itself, the the pumping up of the 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 Gallagher situation and the sort of cheering the revenge and all that stuff, I thought was way overdone in the first half of the game. And I think that the um, analyst just gave Stutzla a pass, right? I mean this is not some unreasonable, outrageous allegation that Brendan Gallagher has made. And they had that, that uh, graphic where they say, you know, Brendan Gallagher had two, uh, uh, you know, penalties for, for uh, uh, diving uh, in his first three years. And so did Stutzla. They're different players, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I don't think Brendan Gallagher was um, uh, alleged or assumed to be the Mike Ribeiro of, of the Montreal Canadiens when he first came in. I mean, he was respected from the get-go because he was, putting his nose in everywhere. So I, I, I was disappointed, but listen, you, you know, I'm 40 years or 45 years of that problem with English broadcasts of Canadians games, right? It's either the Leafs or the senators and, and you're, you're rarely going to get uh, a Canadian's perspective that the Canadians fans expect. Yeah. And I know like it is frustrating. And at the same time, I've seen now on the other side, like where the bread is buttered. Yeah. And I, I see like the thing about, the Leafs and this is the only comment we're going to talk about the Leafs. We're not going to talk about the Leafs players, nothing, anything that 
it's that when you write an article about the Maple Leafs or if you talk about the Maple Leafs, everybody clicks it. People who want to read about the Leafs click it and people who hate the Leafs click it because they want to be mad about it. And it drives so much attention, Right. right? you know, like no other team in Canada does. And that's why there's so much focus. So if you want less Leafs content, don't get mad and yell at the social media coordinators for Sportsnet or TSN. Go and read the content about the team that you want them to talk right. about. Right. right? So, right. Well, do. listen, I have a dear friend who lives in Florida who's been a Montreal Canadiens fan for 65 years. He was watching Florida and the Leafs tonight. You know, he's like, ping me if something exciting happens in the Canadiens game. <laughs> but he's invested now in the Panthers. He hates the Leafs because he's always hated the Leafs. And he was watching that game and he was perfectly happy. Um, to get, you know, little uh, tidbits. And that's the fault of the Canadians and the Senators. If you want to get yep. more coverage and more attention, play better hockey and have a better team. Yeah, I mean, the Canadians got lots of coverage last year. Yep. Right? They did what was yep. necessary to drive that. Yep. They, the Toronto Maple Leafs wanted more coverage. Well, the Canadians took it away from them by eliminating them in the playoffs. So that's how you do it. Um, back to the game a little bit. Yeah. Expanding on Hoffman, obviously a game of good and bad for for Mike Hoffman. Had tons of chances, had that one really nice uh, sequence where he beat uh, an Ottawa player. I wasn't don't remember who it was, and then barreled down the right side there and found a nice pass for Cole Caulfield to kind of get the game yep. going a little bit. But so many bad plays from Mike Hoffman, as per usual, including the Alex Formanton goal uh, coming off of Hoffman's bad pass. In the third period, it felt like the Canadians were more interested in getting Hoffman a goal than they were in tying the game. Like they were just constantly setting him up. Maybe he just told them he wanted one and well, he, he, was he was shooting, he, yeah. but he, he was very involved tonight. And I think that, um, you know, part of the reason why the coach has given him so much playing time, I think, not necessarily because he deserves it, but because he's hoping that Hoffman's going to show something or will have shown something that entices a team next year to take a, a shot at him. Um, he's got two years left, right? Um, it's, it's, it's not a terrible contract, but it's not a cheap one either. And so they have to figure out a way to market this guy. Um, uh, I think they'd love to get rid of him this summer. If they can't get rid of him this summer, I think they'd love to get rid of him at the deadline next year. He obviously doesn't have a future in, in Montreal. He obviously was brought onto a team that was very different than the team that's going to go forward. And so I think that they're just giving him as much airtime, but, but playing time, but like tonight, you know, he made some mistakes defensively. He's always going to do that, but yeah. at least he was engaged. I mean, we've seen games 100%. where he plays and he's, you know, unengaged and there's useless, uh, our players like that, right. Offensive players who are unengaged in a game. They're not back checking. They're not doing the defensive work that they need to do and they're not scoring. So, uh, you know, if he plays like this every game, or two out of every three games, he might get some interest around the league. And I think that would delight the management. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that would be a tall order to move him in the yeah, summer. I think so too. Yeah. I, I think I mean, I, even I next think deadline. Players, I think there are players that could be moved this summer and I realistically, and I think there's players that are going to be, you know, I think they're thinking will be moved at the deadline next year. You know, you can't get rid of Paul Byron this summer. But maybe if he comes back and he plays decently, you can move him at the deadline. Maybe you can move Hoffman at the deadline next year. Maybe you can move Armia at the deadline if you can't move him. You know, those kinds of things. There's going to be another wave of players, I think, that they are likely to get rid of if they can't this summer uh, at the deadline when uh, maybe a team's going to go fishing and, and, and take some of that. But it just shows you 
you know, how much needs to change, especially I think up front, at least on defense, you can see the skeleton of a young defensive core four years down the road, right? Uh, they've done a decent job of drafting that way, but on the offensive side that, that, that they're just, they just don't have the talent beyond, beyond Suzuki and Caulfield. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's a lot of players to bring in that have to be really high talent players uh, to make a difference. Yeah. And, and that's something that we kind of talked about on the last show as we talked about, there was a stat posted that was essentially saying the difference between uh, the Canadians creating offense uh, and what they allow. Uh, they're, I believe, the worst and second worst team in the league in terms of allowing slot passes that lead to shots for and against. They're just terrible in that area. Now, weirdly, they are, I believe, based on what I saw about a week ago, a top 10 rush offense team in the league. This is why they can kind of get things going sometimes and have games where they score a bunch of goals. If they can get their rush game going, they're actually not too bad and they're pretty decent at creating that way. But if the game devolves into a cycle game, a four check game, they can't create the necessary puck movement in the offensive zone to get high quality chances. So it's why you get games like tonight where they dominate possession, but can't really necessarily get the high quality chances to you know, blow Forsberg out of the water. Right. And that's not going to change until they're more talented and yep. bigger up front, you know, and, and um, uh, I, I think that there are opportunities with some of the players they have to, to move, to try to get more talented up front beyond the draft. Um, and it'll be interesting again, to see what they're going to do. Like they have that second first round pick, right? The Calgary pick. I'd love to see them package that pick um, with um one of their players and, and get a 19, 20 year old, you know, uh, somebody who was drafted in 2020 or 2019 or 2021 who can come in in a year or two. There are players like that uh, who are available. There are teams uh, who have players like that who are available, who might want um, uh, some of the talent that the Canadians have. I'd love to see them continue to do that like they did at the trade deadline. And I don't know about you. We haven't talked about this, but I think the reason some Canadians fans have some hope, is because of how well management did at the deadline. Yes, hundred um, percent. The pieces that they moved to get the assets that they got, um, not just the picks, but these you know these two young players that they got. Maybe they're going to be nothing. Maybe they're going to be something. But um, I think that's encouraging. And I think if you didn't have a good trade deadline, I think the vibe right now, the confidence level that this be can be grim. turned around would be a lot less than it is. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be very grim. And I think already it's a little bit grim, right? Like. Because people didn't expect them to go on this kind of a bad run. But, you know, you bring up the trade deadline. I think that's one of the things about this team that we have to continually remind people who are, you know, disappointed is they were already a bad team and they lost a lot of important players at that trade deadline, right? And and around the deadline. Losing Arturi Lekkonen, I think, really impacted their ability to produce offense because when St. Louis came in, one of the first things that he did was he took Lekkonen off of what was like a quasi first line. It was, it was like Lekkonen and Suzuki were taking on the toughest matchups, right? Every night. Then he put out, put a line together that was Lekkonen and whoever. And that was the tough minute matchup line. And it freed up Suzuki and Caulfield to just run around and crush teams. And it worked really, really well. 
without Lekin and they just don't have the defensive stud right. Right. to make that happen. And then even like, I'm not a big fan of Ben Sherratt, but losing Ben Sherratt and replacing him with either a rookie or someone else who's not NHL ready, tough, it's a tough hit. Losing Brett Kulak, you know, destabilizes your third pairing. And I think the young kids have been pretty good. Uh, Harris tonight, especially was, yeah. I thought great, yeah. but yeah. it's still tough. You know, it, it's still tough to do that every night and they've tried to rotate guys in. And, and ideally, you know, they're going to, they're going to commit to youth next year. And these kids are going to play and they are going to take their lumps and there's going to be plenty of six to four games. If they do it right next year, where they're going to lose six to four, no matter who's in net, because, you know, um, Barron's learning and Harris is learning and Gooley is learning and Romanoff is, you know, so um, I think you're just going to have to take your lumps. And, um, but it, it, to me, it's, it's interesting to see what they're going to do. They have to be creative. Um, you know, Edmonton has some young players. I'd love to see them go after some of the young Edmonton forwards. Um, they have to decide what they're going to do with Carey Price, right? So if Carey Price decides he wants to stay, they should move Jake Allen. Um, and if Carey Price wants to leave, then you, you, you stay with Jake Allen. But you, you, I don't think you go into next year with both of them. I think that that if if Carey Price wants to stay, I think you had there is a market for Jake Allen. There was a market for Jake Allen. There will be a market for Jake Allen. Uh, Petrie, um, I'd like to see him dangle Anderson. You know, um, yeah. do the range the Rangers need uh, help on right wing? They would. Uh, well, how about throwing him to 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 the Rangers with a first round pick and seeing what you can get from their young talent? Um, uh, you know, so there's going to be a lot of interesting things, and I, I feel like the Hughes and, and Gorton and, and the gang have earned the benefit of the doubt going into at least this, this off season. And I think there should be massive changes and I think there will be massive changes and um, it makes games like tonight easier to bear thinking it's almost going to be over. Yeah. You know, uh, this, this miserable season. And there was a question here. I'm trying to find it now, but uh, I, I know that I remember the gist of it. It was, it leads into something that we had talked about as a possible topic for the show anyway, which is kind of what we're talking about right now was the question was if you could choose anyone on the roster to be gone next season, who would it be? And we talked about it before. Andrew was saying that he wanted to talk about who stays, who goes from this roster. That's a great way to start it out. So let's go with you, Andrew, who, if you could choose anyone on this roster, be gone. I think, I think there's five players. I I, I don't think you need um, both Pitlicks. I think you lose a Pitlick. Uh, I think you lose Pizzetta. I don't think he's an NHL player, I, although I'd love to see them get uh, someone like that who uh, is a little bit robust and who is going to stick up for his t- teammates. I think Weidman doesn't need to be here next year. Um, uh, who else? Um, you know, Dvorak is going to be interesting. I could see them dangling him. Hoffman, we've already talked about. I'd like to see them keep Ryan Paling unless they can throw him in a deal um, uh, for, for, for someone I'd like to see them develop him. I, I think he's, um, got the chance to be a, a decent player. Um, who else is there? You know, Drouin is another player that's going to be moved at the deadline next year, uh, unless they can get some sort of a deal for him. Byron, we've already talked about, will be gone next year, uh, at the deadline. So there's five or six players. I think you have to move out. Now I, I say that unless, <laughs> Management says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to hide all of our assets at the lower levels, right? We're going to have another down year, 
And so we're going to go with a lineup where we have two pit licks or maybe three pit licks. And we're going to, you know, have Paling and, and um, Laurent Dauphin is another one that is not going to be around next year. It's easy to identify the guys that, you know, are unlikely to be there. Uh, people who are not uh, Hughes, Gorton people. Um, so I'd like to see big changes. I don't know what they're going to do on defense. Um, I like the idea of having a couple of veteran defensemen, Edmondson and Savard. I, I don't, wouldn't mind if they're back. Uh, you start with them and Roman, Romanov, and then you bring in a couple of the kids and maybe you, you, you find a person. I don't want them to sign Christopher Letang. I don't want them <laughs> to sign, you know, I, please just don't try to do it and, and finish 22nd in the league or you know, 19th in the league. I, I think they need to take their lumps. So I think that there's going to be quite a bit of change. And the, the question is going to be, do they dangle the people like Anderson who have value and who are among the best players on the team because they want to change the pace? Let me, let me throw something out of you. Um, Anderson, the Calgary first round pick and something else for uh, Lafreniere. Uh, you're done uh, immediately. Uh, I, I don't think the Canadian. Rangers would, but yeah, yeah, done from the Canadians <laughs> point of view, but, but you know, do the, how, what do the Rangers think of that kid? Um, the Rangers have a goalie, right? That, that the Russian goalie that's backing up now that's, that's uh, RFA. Do you make a run at him if you're going to lose one of your, you know, so that there's things that you can do if you dangle some of these people. Petrie, if you add a second round pick with Petrie, you might be able to get a decent young forward from, from uh, Dallas. Um, Dallas has a couple of really nice young forwards who are 1920, that kind of stuff. The Rangers don't have a lot of draft picks this coming year. So there's, ways you can work it with the extra draft assets that you have to bring in 19 and 20 year olds. And I think that's what you're going to need to do. And if you can bring in two of them and you have your first round pick who probably will be a forward, then you begin to have the makings of something going forward. But um, that's going to take a lot of skill from management to, to, to do that. Yeah. Skill and creativity, I think is, yeah. are the two things. And I think they showed at the deadline that they do have yeah. the potential to do that. You know, obviously yeah. you're not going to win, every single trade in perpetuity. And we won't know if they won those trades until the draft picks develop, right? right? Like they have to also make right. bank on all these moves. Yep. But yeah, uh, in terms of, for me, the, if I were to look through this and say one player that I could get rid of, no strings attached, I think it would probably be Mike Hoffman. Uh, yeah. It's between him and UL yeah. Armia, but I've liked UL Armia down the stretch. I know he's injured now, yeah. but I, once he finally started to show some effort and get his game together a little bit, he showed his versatility again. And you remember that like, you know, the last couple of years, he's been a, a decent bottom of the lineup yeah. player yeah. and he can still be that. Yeah. He's just way too expensive, hilariously expensive. Eventually they are going to have to move that contract, but might not be a right. Yeah. And, and again, I think that it's easier to move that contract at a trade deadline because Armia, unlike Hoffman, has a reputation for being a decent playoff player. Yes. And, and, right. And, and um, maybe not perfect, but at least he's got that. And I think if you can um, pump him up um, in the coming year, then maybe you can, you can do something with him or you throw him in or, um, you know, their, their team's going to want that. But yeah, I mean, I think Hoffman, uh, Matthew Pro is done, right? Um, so, so you're going to have five or six spots even if you don't do anything dramatic, I think you're going to have five or six spots. And, and um, again, I don't know what they want to do with Laval, uh, you know, like you see the senators and they have a lot of young kids that they brought up and some of them are better than others, but,
but there's a lot, there's a lot of them, right? And and I think that the senators are a couple of years ahead of the Canadians in the the redevelopment of the team. I'd Whether hope so because they've been made, they've been bad for a while. They've been bad for a while and they've made some decent picks and stuff. And so, it, you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether they made the right choices. Um, but I mean, you look around the league and there's not many teams that you can, the Canadians can look at and say, okay, well, we're ahead of them in the, in, in the curve. And th- that's got to be disappointing, but I guess you got to start somewhere. It's disappointing, but I feel like it's also almost a blessing in disguise. And, and um, people can Feel free to sh- call me biased or whatever for this, but I look at this Atlantic division that the Canadians are in and the teams at the top right now. I don't think the Canadians want to be that good in two years. Like just to start your competitive window in two years, you're still going to have to be deal with Tampa Bay. I don't think Boston's going away until Patrice Bergeron retires and Brad Marchand has a heavy decline, which still like they seem to find guys like Pasternak and McAvoy at the back half of the first round consistently, you know, you've still got Florida who just hit their peak. Toronto is still fantastic. You know, Detroit is building to write the right things, you know, to be a couple of years behind Detroit and Ottawa has played well. Even yes. Yeah. Buffalo now has (laughs) a real coach in Don Granado. So to be a couple of years behind where you can maybe sneak in while those teams are, you know, maybe at their peak, but falling off, having right. off years, I think is actually a big advantage. Yeah. You know, th- it reminds me, you're probably old enough to remember, but about 20 years ago, the Canadians were really bad, yeah. right? At the beginning of the 21st century, 99 to 20, 2000, 2001, 2002, whatever. And, and they, they, you know, Oleg Petrov was the, you know, uh, was a forward and it was the era of, of uh, Craig Darby and Yuha Lind and those kinds of guys. And Stefan Quintal was like the best defenseman. It was, it was a Yuha grim time. Lind. Right. <laughs> and, and they, but they played so hard every game. Trent McCleary until he got hit in the throat. I mean, they played so hard every game and they competed and they would win like 35 games. Right. And they'd finish 20th or whatever, 24th or whatever. Um, I'm, I appreciated those teams. I respected those teams because there clearly wasn't talent, you know, Red Fisher, the late great Red Fisher, where, where are the players? Um, this is better than that, right? Cause you're still not making the playoffs, but it, you have a really good chance now of getting a top three talent and you have a really good chance now of having that pick be made by people who have a better track record than the previous guy did in, in picking at the top. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic in spite of everything being bad. And like I said, if, if you're halfway done and if we can all suffer through one more year and get a top five pick next year or get a chance at those two great kids at the top of next year's draft, let's, let's go for it and, and let's, uh, move on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that this whole situation and what we're talking about here about, uh, the team's. 20 years ago, like when Sakakoibu was the only guy, yeah. right? It was yeah. like yeah. when they got Richard Zednick, it was like, oh my God, yeah. somebody can yeah. score 22 goals. Yeah, Jan yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the level that they were dealing with. I don't think they'll get that bereft because they do have some good pieces here. Right. But there was a question asked earlier on the stream if I can handle another bad 82 games. Sure. Frankly, like I'm not emotionally affected by the Montreal Canadiens. I haven't been since 2016. But in terms of something to talk about, there's something to talk about most of the time when 
Caulfield and Suzuki are playing. There's young kids in the lineup. You know, there's there's storylines to go there. I think the main thing that they don't want is to get to the depression level that the end of the right. Ducharme era was. That's what they want to avoid, right? Where every right. game is seven one, six to nothing. That's right. the bad thing. And they're kind well, of listen, they're almost that, in there that, now. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm 50 years as a have fan. I've never seen it as bad as it was at the end of the Ducharme era. Ever. Yeah, it was bad. Um, ever. Uh, I mean, I, I, we, there were bad Canadians teams, but they were never like that. And so I, I think that's the rock bottom. Um, and I am invested. I mean, it, I am in a better mood when they win. I, I um, ha- having lived through playoff runs that are deep and sustained, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's special. It's, it's special when it's not just once every four years or five years and you're out in the second round. I mean, it's yeah. special to go deep and deep and deep. And um, so I am invested. And, but uh, having said that, I, I don't want to go back to the, the one-on-one off and, you know, you, you need carry price. I mean, one of the tragedies of the Bergevin era uh, of the, of the carry price era, right. Is that they drafted this franchise goalie 17 years ago and they were never able to build a franchise around them. Yep. They were never able to figure out uh, how to do it. And now it's too late. Um, whether he comes back next year or not, it's too late. And uh, that's a, that's a shame because uh, he uh, is a hall of fame goalie. Uh, I hope they raise his, number to the rafters. Uh, I imagine that they will, even though he didn't win a cup or he won't likely win a cup with them, but uh, that's a shame because that was a unique talent. And uh, um, you know, it's a shame that he didn't get a chance here and it'll be fascinating again to see what he wants to do. You know, is he so comfortable in Montreal that he wants to ride it out for another year? Does he want to retire, retire? I could see him doing that in a way that other people don't regardless of the salary stuff, or does he want to go try to win somewhere? And if so, uh, would he pick a place that, that wants him? Um, so, I mean, it's a fascinating offseason in, in a is. way that it really hasn't been for quite a while. It's going to be crazy. And, you know, this, the whole thing about like what Hughes and Gorton inherited, I've seen a few people talk about uh, that they inherited something better than Bergevin did. I find that to be like a wacko idea. <laughs> like people look back at the 2011-12 season like, oh, they were like a, one of the worst teams in the league. Yeah, everybody was injured that year. And then they brought in a coach and immediately undercut him right after hiring him. It was like, oh, yeah, we, we shouldn't have hired this guy, you know, because he was a, an Anglo. And we can argue the merits of that, whatever. But Bergevin inherited prime PK Subban, prime Carey Price, prime Max Pacioretty, right. uh, Brennan Gallagher coming in as a rookie, Alex right. Galchenyuk, who, right. despite the fact that he flamed out hard in his rookie season, put up the best points per 60 yeah. of yeah. any teenager since Sidney Crosby. Like right. he was an offensive phenom and they yeah. just failed at taking advantage of that and building that. Right. So they had amazing pieces to build a contender. Yeah. They yeah. just, Consistently failed. I mean, Thomas Bukanich, Andre yep. Markov was healthy again. There was a lot of great pieces yep. there that Bergevin inherited. But uh, let's not get too deep into the Bergevin uh, era because it'll just make everybody upset. Well, and- let me just say that one of the things that I'd like to see this summer from the many journalists that cover the Canadians is a postmortem on Bergevin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously he flamed out here. But it wasn't like it was a forecast situation. You know, I think there was a lot of information that reporters had about this era, whether it was the way he treated alumni or the way he treated other 
players, the, the fighting with Dano and all that stuff. I think a lot of that didn't go reported in real time and still hasn't really been reported. And I'd love to see someone do a deep dive into that. Like what really happened? And at what point did they realize they had a problem? And how quickly did they react after they saw that they had a problem um, in, in doing something? Because, you know, the longer you go from the end of the Bergevin era, the worse it looks. Uh, whether it's the, I mean, with the front office stuff, the analytics, which is your, you know, bailiwick. I mean, there isn't a single thing where people say, yeah, you know, the good old days. Uh, and, and I would have liked to have learned more about that while it was happening. And I wonder why that is that we didn't, whether it's access, you know, you're worried about, you You, you can talk more about this than I can, because, but it's hard to cover a team, right? Uh, you, you're reliant on the team for access and you need um, to have uh, a decent graces with the PR staff and so forth. But that's a huge hole in the coverage of the Canadians, uh, the flaming out of the Bergevin thing and, and why it took so long for Molson to move and, and the damage that it did. And how I, I would love to see a deep dive this summer into that before it gets so far in the past that nobody cares about it. Yeah. I, the, something happened after the Bergevin removal and the incoming of Jeff Gordon, uh, it bothers me every time that there's a big name uh, firing or whatever in major NHL franchises is we get all the dirty laundry aired almost immediately. And yeah. to me, that says you knew, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you knew and you hit it or you knew and you felt like if you reported it, you were going to get punished for it. And yeah. frankly, I know from experience, I don't know if I can actually talk about it because of uh, NDAs that I've signed, but I know from experience that the Bergevin group did try to intimidate people. I've written things where right. I was told by my boss that immediately they got a screaming phone call about right. the fact that I wrote something. Right. I know that the Canadians did not want me anywhere near their arena. Right. Uh, not necessarily the PR people or anything like that, but uh, from high up, we'll say yeah. that. Yeah. And part of that, people can say I was unfair, whatever. That's your opinion. But to me, it was a critical eye. And I think that kind of segues nicely into Gila Fleur, because I remember back in like 2008 when the Canadians were flying high, uh, it was coming up to their you know 100th year celebration and they were playing really well. And Gila Fleur came out in the media and said something along the lines of it was a team of fourth liners. And young me, who was 2008, geez, how much was that? 14 years ago now? That yeah. would have been 21, was th saying like, oh, I can't believe Guy Lafleur would say that. It's just an awful thing to say. But right. now at 35, I look at Guy Lafleur and the comments that he consistently made about the team not being good enough and not having enough talent. Right. And it's very in line with my views. And I think that Guy Lafleur, to his detriment and maybe not silencing himself as a media person, or like in the media just had extraordinarily high standards for the Montreal Canadians. And why the hell wouldn't he? Yeah. With the teams Listen, that he played on. Yeah. I mean, it, it was funny. I, um, I'll, I'll just say one thing. Bergevin's comments after Lafleur's death, there was a tweet I saw and I, I thought it was interesting. It wasn't very, uh, it wasn't as emotional as some of the other things, but, but he basically said, you know, I, I, I admire his candor. Right. And I read that and I thought, yeah, I'm sure that Lafleur came down on you and was critical of you. And I'm sure you hated the fact that Lafleur did that publicly and privately. And so that's your, you know, uh, ode to that. 
Lafleur had high expectations because all of us of my generation had high expectations. And one of the, the things that's fascinating about the death of Lafleur, much differently than the death of Beliveau, the death of Richard, is that, you know, there's a, there's a line, right? If you're under 50 years old, you don't remember Guy Lafleur at his peak. You were, you know, if you were born in 1971 when he was drafted and you were five when in, in 76, maybe you remember some of it. But you have to be over 50 to appreciate how good he was, how good those teams were for how long they were and the, the standards that they set uh, and the, the, the way that they were interwoven into the fabric of the city and the country and the, and, and the, and the province. So, you know, it, it's, it's a shame, right? Because most of the people that are mourning the death of Lafleur either didn't see him in his prime or saw him when he played for the Rangers or the Nordiques or saw him at the end of his Canadian stint when he wasn't um, what he was. Um, and yeah, I mean, they set really high standards and that's why it's been so critically disappointing to all of us who remember those, uh, uh, that decade to have decades and decades where you're basically in the desert, hoping that you're going to, you know, come in 15th and, and grab a playoff spot. And I, I think on some level Bergevin understood that I'm sure that Molson on some level understood that he was around in the seventies, Jeff Molson, he was around um, more intensely than most of us. Um, and so that's, um, I think, one of the things that's driving this very emotional reaction to Lafleur's death. You either appreciate him in history as a historical figure, or you remember what it was like to be at the forum when the guy got the puck and you tense in your seat and you'd rise in your seat. And I wrote about it. It's almost like an interactive um, experience uh, where, you know, you were, you were him and he was you and you, you know, were looking where he was going to pass. And, and he, what he did was he created these moments where it was, he was either going to do something amazing or someone would have to do something amazing to stop him. Or there would be some horrible accident, you know, of, of game play where, you know, it would all come a, a shambles, but one of those three things was going to happen and all of them were really exciting. And, and so um, good for him for speaking his mind. I think he was critical until the very end because yeah. I think he was fed up. And I think like a lot of people of his age, uh, you know, you reach a certain point where you think, am I going to ever see this team win a Stanley cup again? Um, you know, I, I grew up, I, I think that uh, I'm, you know, when I was 27 years old, they had won it 10 times and, and, you know, nothing since then. So at a certain point, you wonder, is going to happen? And I'm sure that all these guys, Shutt and Robinson and uh, all these guys that were crying on the air uh, yesterday um, for their friend and their teammate, they must be thinking to themselves, my God, you know, the end is coming. It's closer than it was 20 years ago. And we're still dealing with this team that's terrible. We're, you know, we'd like to be able to participate in a parade and it's nowhere in sight. Yeah, it is unfortunate. And there's a comment here. Uh, you knew there was something wrong with Mark Bergevin when he couldn't wait a day or two for Larry Robinson to get back to him after an unforced delay before hiring uh, his friend J.J. Daniel. It's actually worse than that. Larry Robinson approached the Montreal Canadiens asking to be a part of their coaching staff. Yeah. Yeah. And to Bergevin's credit, from what I have heard, which is, you know, I'm not an insider. This is what I've heard from multiple people, though. And when... At least three people tell me something. I consider that verified. It was Michel Therrien who did not want Larry Robinson behind that bench because it was a threat to his ego. So, yes, Mark Bergevin, but also 
the guy that Mark Bergevin hired which, was also of that yeah, same which ilk. Is, which is back assward. I mean, uh, because at the point that Robinson approached the team, he, he wasn't he wasn't approaching the team as a wonderful veteran. He, he had had a wonderful coaching resume. Yep. I mean, he had succeeded as a coach. He wasn't being hired um, because he was a friend. He was being hired because he had this talent. And yeah, I mean, you can go down the list, right? There's a lot of missed opportunities, but that's my point is that I wish that there was more, I mean, some people, and I don't read as much of the French language coverage. I try to read as much as I can. I don't read all of it. Um, and I know that there's some folks on the French uh, language side who are a little bit more aggressive about the Canadians than, than, than um, some of the English folks are, but there has to be more of it. And, and I'm hoping that, that there will be um, going forward. And I think Gordon and Hughes get it. I think they get it probably because they come from different organizations where it is a little tougher mm-hmm. and there are more questions asked. And, and um, this whole idea of transparency and accountability, it, you know, it's all, um, um, you know, kumbaya and <laughs> until something bad happens. But so far, I think they've done a really good job. And honestly, the catalyst for it to me, the catalyst was the first round pick last year of that kid. Yep. Logan Mayu. I think that that was, uh, I think that cemented the end of, of Bergevin. And uh, I th- think the Canadians deserve a lot of credit, not for how they handled it initially, how they handled it initially should have been a firing offense for Bergevin and Timmons. But how they've handled it since then, I think, has been really good. And I'm talking to someone who has a lot of experience dealing with coverage of people involved in criminal justice, especially young people involved in criminal justice. And I think they've done a really good job. And it'll be interesting to see how Hughes and Gorton and Chantal Maccabee handle it going forward uh, and the other folks that they've hired to deal with that kind of stuff. Because I think that was, that was a turnaround before the Bergevin turnaround. Yeah. And I think that's a very positive step. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Back to Lafleur because I feel like we yeah. have to spend some time yeah. on him. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't grow up watching him play. The only time I watched Lafleur play live was in an old timers game when he strapped rockets to his skates, which was a fun <laughs> little gimmick to uh, gain some of his speed from his younger days. But I've watched many a game from the seventies with uh, Lafleur featured in it. Obviously, yeah. you get some appreciation of that. I, I talked about him a little bit today in a, in a little column that I do for a, a betting site. Not really appropriate for that, but I had to write something. I usually do like a little intro to like what to look right. forward to. Wrote about Lafleur instead. There is players who are iconic for a team, right? And Lafleur is absolutely certainly right. that. But there's also players who are just the icon of an era. Yep. And I feel like there is no player who is the 1970s of hockey more than Guy Lafleur. Like he just was the guy from the flow going in the breeze, the beauty of his game, the way he was just the standout in every possible way, the creativity. Yeah. He was the yeah, guy. I, yeah. And I think he, he didn't, it's not like he was handed to him, right? He took it away from Bobby Orr and he took it away from Phil Esposito in the early seventies. And he took it away from Bobby Clark and he took it away from Daryl Sittler. And then he had it. And then he got challenged with, by Brian Trottier, you know, and Mike Bossy and, and those guys. Um, and he kept it, you know, he kept it through that thing. And so he fought for it. <clears throat> and then, of course, it didn't hurt that he was on that team and they course, won, yeah. uh, you know, all the time. But, I mean, it's hard to explain. The guy was a dude, right? So he had this amazing talent. And 
I was a kid growing up, but you knew that he was doing these things and then he was smoking cigarettes. Yep. Right. Like he's smoking cigarettes in practice and he's smoking cigarettes here. And you knew that they were partying because they all partied and, and he was able to accomplish these things. Even, even before, like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think about like the, the team going out and partying like that. Right. You're not really that sophisticated enough, but you knew that they had a lot of fun even under Scotty Bowman. And um, that's the thing that, that, is so remarkable to me is that he, he's this hero, he's this idol. And I think what, what sort of capsulates him is that goal in 79, mm -hmm. right? Because, um, I mean, it, it's hard to describe today what that game felt like. You felt like the Bruins had a chance to win. And it was in, unbelievable to you that the Bruins were going to beat the Canadians. And then they're, they're beating the Canadians. And, and it's not like they were flukily beating the Canadians. They were, they were, you know, mano a mano with that team for, you know, uh, what, six games and 55 minutes. And, you, you know, it, it's, it's falling away. And you knew there were rumblings before that game and before that series that Dryden wasn't necessarily going to come back and that Cornway was hurt and wasn't likely to come back. And Lemaire was great. I mean, there, Scotty Bowman was angry because Irvin Grunman had come in and, uh, yep. Sam Pollock had hired him. And, you know, so, so you knew it was going to not last and you knew it was the last hurrah. And then the hero of your whole decade, you know, in this last moment where you're basically about to cry and Don Cherry is about to win and um, he shoots and he scores. And it's not like it was a goal, like uh, Brett uh, Hull's goal to win the Stanley cup, but you know, the Buffalo Dallas goal, whatever. I mean, it was a rocket. Right. And, and it was, it, it was, the only player in the league that likely would score that goal. It wasn't a garbage goal. It wasn't a tip in. It wasn't like you, like you go through the Canadians 93 playoff run, all the overtime goals and they're banking off butts and everything. I mean, it was a rocket. And, and I think that really, I think cemented, believe it or not, what people felt about him, that he really was legendary in that sense. Ted Williams never did that, right? Ted Williams yeah. had his whole career and he never, won a world series by hitting a home run in the ninth inning, Joe DiMaggio for as great as he was rarely did stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, Larry bird maybe did it. Michael Jordan certainly did it, but Gil Fleur did it in a way that's just, um, you know, uh, unforgettable. Yeah. I was reading a column by Steven Brunt on, on LaFleur yep. and, and there was one thing that I get what he was saying, but I disagree with his premise a little bit. He was talking about how, Hockey isn't a game of anticipation. It's a game of yeah. reaction. And right. I, I disagree with that, but I think it's because I watch Canadians games all the time because I've experienced the bell center as the, the, the arena where I've watched more right. NHL games than anywhere else. Right. Because there is that anticipation there. You can see when you see a play develop, everybody stands up right in that yeah. steep yeah. incline in the bell center. And it's the only arena like it in, Yep. I'll say the world for hockey. I wonder, because he was talking, he was making the point that with most players, it's a game of reaction, but with Lafleur, it was a game of anticipation because you knew yep. when the puck was on his yep. stick, something special was going to happen. I wonder if the presence of the crowd in Montreal and the way they react to things to this day has a lot to do with Lafleur. Uh, that's a good point. I, I mean, I, I think that my dad went to games in the fifties and sixties and forties probably, and they always won. Right. And, and they always played a certain way going back to Dick Irvin senior. And so 
they, because they won so often and because they won in such a um, systemic fashion, they educated people about hockey. And it's a, it's a trite thing to say, and it's a cliche to say that, you know, the most educated fans in the world, but, um, and I don't know if that's still true. I think it probably is, but you know, <laughs> for 25 years, they were playing 10, 15 more games every year because they were always in the playoffs um, and they were playing intense hockey and they were playing hockey. You, you know, you, you, there's that photo that I, I posted and that a lot of people have posted, you know, you went f- literally from rocket to Bellevue to Lafleur. Yep. You went from 1942 to 1984. It's 42 years in the life of a franchise where you had those guys and all of the people around them, uh, Henri Richard. And I mean, on and on and on people know the names uh, who, who played a kind of hockey that was um, special and fierce and talented. And, and um, so, yeah. And, and I think also it's a Canadian thing, right? I mean, um, the, the, the focus on hockey in Canada is unique. Um, I think maybe in soccer in, 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 in Britain and, but it's, it's certainly unique in North America. And so, you know, you listen to the people coming out in the last couple of days who were, um, giving tributes to Guy Lafleur, right? French people, English people and uh, men and women. And, you know, the, the Saturday night Canadians game in the seventies was the thing. And in the eighties, it was the thing. And in the sixties, it was the thing. And so, uh, um, yeah, I, I think that there's a, a knowledge that comes with being a Canadians fan um, that probably doesn't exist in a lot of the newer American cities for sure. Uh, and that is really hard to create. I mean, uh, you know, Boston might have it. Um, Chicago has it. I mean, I, I went to the finals and when Chicago played Boston a decade ago or whatever, and I mean, those, those, those people knew, knew what they were talking about, but it's a, it's a very Montreal thing. And, and um, again, the other thing I think to say is there was also an era where there was a lot of stability in the teams, right? I mean, you look at the Canadians dynasty in the seventies and there's, you know, six or seven of them that were there the whole time. Right. Yeah. Which is, which was not happened now. So you were familiar with these people and they, a lot of them lived in the, in, in, in Montreal. Uh, a lot of them went to the racetrack. My, my dad owned racehorses at Blue Bonnets and, you know, uh, Sir Savard owned horses and Guy Lapointe was the horse guy and Ferguson, John Ferguson was there. So they interacted with the community in a way that I think was also special, but Guy Lafleur, you know, even if he had not scored in 79 and, and saved that, that dynasty, um, just the, the presence and the, uh, the commitment, what I didn't know until later, probably when Ken Dryden wrote his book, the game was how dedicated Lafleur was. Cause he yeah. never let on. I mean, you never, like I said, he, he came across in the seventies as a dude who showed up at the game with a Labatt's and a, and a cigarette scored three goals and then went and partied. And you didn't know until later when he was gone, how hard he practiced and how, you know, uh, much he was driven to be like Bellavo. And that also, I think makes him a legend. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, you, you read the game, which everybody, every hockey fan should read the yeah. game. And he talks about Lafleur as, you know, kind of a loner, but yeah. always first on the ice at practice, sometimes would practice hours before the team, uh, kind of reminds me in a way of the way people talk about Yarmer Yager. I yep. remember Yager legendarily practiced with like weighted uh, weights on his legs and arms to build his, uh, his muscles up. And even in the, his forties was practicing hours every single day where other guys were taking rest days. Sometimes that's what it takes to be the best. Uh, there's a comment here saying, I do think that goal was offside. 
the LaFleur <laughs> triangle. The last thing we need is offside reviews on the iconic goals. Come on, Jeff. Don't don't post that stuff. Uh, it says Scotty Bowman apparently begged LaFleur to stop smoking and told LaFleur he could be the greatest ever, not just for a few years. If only he'd won that argument. But part of what makes a guy like LaFleur great is not listening to people. Yeah. It's, and and listen, Scotty Bowman, I mean, it's amazing that he's still around, first of all, yeah. and coherent and contributing to the discussion about hockey, whether it's the Canadians or whatever. He was on the air yesterday, right, on TSN. And I mean, the the the, the perspective he offered uh, about uh, the first couple of years of the first career, which have been subject to so much discussion. Uh, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, you had, you had Mahovlich right at, at center and you had Cornway on the wing and, 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 you know, it wasn't an easy thing to, to, you had Rejan Oul, you know, you had a lot of centers and you had a lot of talent on that team. The team had just won the Stanley cup and beaten the Bruins. So it wasn't like Lafleur was coming into a situation where a Canadian's first round pick this year is going to come into. And, uh, I just thought it was fascinating that Scotty's still around and, he obviously pushed all the right buttons. And then listen, Steve Schutt said yesterday that the, a lot of the guys didn't like Scotty. You're not supposed to like your coach. A lot of them will come around to it. And um, I think there's a lot about the relationship between Scotty Bowman and Gilfer that's gone unsaid and probably will always be unsaid uh, about how uh, Scotty pushed Lafleur and whether Lafleur pushed back. But um, listen, he's going to be, um, he's, he's, he's uh, iconic. Uh, I think you know, the seventies was also a very iconic moment in history of the, the province. And uh, I, I think he's all a part of that as, as well. Maybe not as much as Richard in the fifties, but um, so it's going to be fascinating to see what they do. I hope that they do something really special. I imagine that they will. I hope they continue to have a, an armband or something for him next year, which they should do yes. until they decide what they want to do as far as the uh, tributes go. Um, and, and listen, the guy spent the last, what, decade or two of his life um, doing charitable things to try to help people who were in need and help people who were sick, which is not um, universal in, in, in the world of sports. And I think for that reason also, he deserves a lot of, a lot of praise. A hundred percent. I don't, I think even people who have money and I don't know how much money Lafleur had because his playing career players right. didn't get paid a lot then, but not everyone who, it, while going through the worst thing you can experience in your life, you know, having your death dragged out over years of battling cancer and lung cancer is such an awful, awful experience. Yeah. There's not everyone. Their first thought is how can I help other people who are going through this, right. you know? And right. I think that Lafleur deserves so much credit for that. And, you know, uh, I don't know what the Canadians are going to do to honor him. I'm sure it will be special. It's weird over these last few days. Cause like, I didn't grow up with Guy Lafleur, right? I grew up of, with stories of Guy Lafleur from my right. dad, who, right. when he was growing up, he was his favorite player right. uh, until he, you know, went sacrilegious and became an Oilers fan because he was living in Edmonton in the eighties. Which, you know, I get it, but come I on. get that too. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, that was a fun time. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun time. But Guy Lafleur is something super special. And you know, there was a comment here that there's there was a standing ovation for him in Calgary. It's more than just the Montreal market, and. Yeah. Going through the last couple of days here, I it's not something that I thought about often, but I remembered that I actually got a chance in like 2014. I was working with Ted Bird doing something and he had some function that he was doing at uh, like a rec center for some event. I don't remember what it was, but we got to interview uh, Guy Lafleur 
that day. He was showing up at some event to put in his FaceTime and sign some autographs and everything. And the takeaway that I got, you know, getting to ask a couple questions of Guy Lafleur feels so special now right. because the opportunity right. is gone. Right. But I remember asking him specifically about the Canadians offensive players and, you know, can they thrive in a defensive system? And his thought like was very bluntly, no, they shouldn't be focusing on defense. Like if you have a guy like Max Pacioretty or PK Subban, let right. them free, do right. their thing. Right. And we talked about the high standards that Guy Lafleur had. What I would say to all Canadians fans and Canadians media this year is yes, we're still kind of in the honeymoon period for Jeff Gorton and Kent Hughes, but have those high standards yeah. because yeah. this organization got to where it is historically with high standards. And that goes for both holding their feet to the fire over the comments that they made over hiring uh, diverse minds, diverse people in this organization, because yeah. they haven't done that yet. There may be some diversity of thought, but this summer, they need to back up on that. And it goes with making bank on those picks on yeah. building a development program yeah. on building, building yeah. an analytics department department, hold them accountable, not saying hate on them, but hold them accountable. And for Canadians fans, raise your standard. And that's one thing that constantly bothered me about the Bergevin era was the constant talk about just make the playoffs and you never know what can happen. You know, carry price can get, it. yeah, it almost happened last year, but it was never going to yeah. get you to the end game. Right. Look at the end game. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess if you're, you know, if, if you're used to this, you, you don't know what it's like, but, um, you know, you want sustained excellence and, and as much as you can get it. And if Tampa can do it, and if uh, Colorado seems to be able to do it, uh, uh, you know, other teams uh, are able to compete in the top six or seven year after year after year. Um, the Canadians should be able to do it. And <clears throat> that's why I think you, you can't scrimp and save this year and you can't go sign Latang, even if Latang begs you to come here, you know, unless, you, you know, you don't want those 70 points necessarily on the point <clears throat> next year, because you don't want to uh, finish a 22nd. You, you need to bring in, there needs to be high end offensive talent on the blue line and high end offensive talent up front. And the, the best way to get that is to get those picks. And, um, I think that they know it. I think that they're coming into a situation where they know the cupboard isn't bare, that they know they do have some prospects in the system. They know they do have some stuff that they can work with, but you know, they're going to have to continue to blow it up first. And I, I think, you know, Lafleur would have been the first to, to applaud that. And, and, um, um, you know, I guess in some way it's cathartic that at the end of this miserable season, this horrible thing happens. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's just a coda to this, 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 you know, this, 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 uh, shameful season. And, um, but again, at least they, they did something right. At least they got rid of Bergevin. At least they got rid of Ducharme. At least they brought in fresh ideas. Uh, Martin saint Louis is not going to be coached for 10 years here, but he's already made a mark. He's already changed the, the, the course and the arc of careers here, uh, in, in a, in a positive way. And if you can do that for a couple more years, then, uh, you know, I, I think they're they're going to be in good shape. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, just just the the, the final the, the final thought on Lafleur. Like, you think about sports, and you think about you know people put these expectations on these players, right? And um, whether you're a first round pick in the NFL or a first round pick in, in hockey, so here's this kid. He gets drafted, and he's supposed to replace Beliveau, 
who was irreplaceable. And he talk did. Talk about expectations. <laughs> yeah. Talk about the weight of expectations. And he did, right? He did. He sur- ultimately, he surpassed Belleville, maybe not in terms of his captaincy and all that stuff, but in terms of points and, and everything else. And that just doesn't happen, right? Maybe it happened with Mickey Mantle, who replaced Joe DiMaggio. Um, but I, it's hard to describe it happening. And, and so you think about the, the, the miracle of that and what he had to live through to get that done and the, the strength that it took. Um, and then to, to have 30 more years after he quit playing or 20 more, 30 more years after he quit playing um, to be a legend and to live like that. Uh, I think uh, that was a credit to him. And listen, Belavo did it too. You know, Belavo's post-career, post-playing um, career, uh, he was in management with the Canadians, but he was an ambassador in the way that Lafleur was an ambassador. And Richard was too, although Richard was shyer, was more shy and not as much of a people person, I think, as Lafleur, not as approachable. And of course, it was a very different time. So I think people who got to see, you know, I was lucky. I got to see him play in his prime as a kid growing up there. And, and um, it's unforgettable. And I just hope that young fans of the Canadians get that sense whether it's five years from now or whatever, that they get a run with a real championship team um, with homegrown players that are superstars. Um, Montreal deserves it after all these years and not just a run like we had last year, but like a sustained thing where you go into a game and you say, we're going to win this game or we're going to win this series. And honestly, you haven't felt like that in a long time. Yeah. It's, it's been a very long time. All right. We'll, we'll end it there on the high note of Guy Lafleur. Uh, thank you so much for joining me here, Andrew. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for oh, having me. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. We've got th- three three more games left on the schedule before we hang close in there, out. Andrew. Three more Game over Montreal. Three more losses. We'll yeah. we'll see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this, Andrew. And before we close it out, uh, tell everyone where they can find your work. Oh, my work's everywhere. I'm I'm not a hockey person. Uh, I'm, I work on criminal justice and. Uh, for a couple of nonprofits, the Marshall Project and the Brennan Center. Uh, but I'm an ex-Montrealer and always will be and love it and love the Canadians and, uh, and the Expos and hope that the Canadians can come back, even if the Expos can't. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to everyone watching and everyone who will watch. It means a lot in this season that you're tuning into this show. And stay tuned because next week we're going to launch three more Game Over shows on the Steve Dangle Podcast Network.